Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 31. In this episode, we will be hearing from Stephen Vance as he continues his series with us in the Psalms. This time, we will be considering Psalm 51. The title is Greater Grace for Even More Gigantic Failure. This is part one of a two-part series. Part two will be posted early next week. Today we're uh, continuing our study in the Psalms, and I'd like to invite you to consider with me uh, Psalm 51. And uh, we've studied in the past various Psalms of lament, Psalms of sadness. Uh, Psalm 22 was David's personal distress, why have you forsaken me? And we saw it was also messianic, our Savior quoted it. And then we looked at Psalm 88 and 89, and we have a national distress that's being lamented completely dark. Later, we'll even look at a a type of lament psalm that's called an imprecatory psalm, where the psalmist is so uh, angry and upset, they are calling out for, for vengeance. But the lament that we're looking at today is is a personal confession. And I've called this greater grace for even gigantic failure. And so let's read the, the words of this psalm together, Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came into him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And as we look at greater grace for even gigantic failure, you know, uh, maybe you've experienced some kind of personal failure in your life. And as we consider this confessional lament, it Sometimes helpful to keep that sort of experience in mind, a personal failure. We all have them. If you think proudly that you don't, just remember 1 John 1. John says, if we say, verse 8, we have no sin, no sin nature. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are all sinful human beings. And he continues in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, not engaged in the practice of sin. We make him a liar and his word is not in us because we're not only all sinful human beings, we are all sinful human doings. We act in sin. Maybe no one else knows your failure or or maybe many know, but it's like a monkey on your back and it keeps you down. You're not like Peter who denied the Lord three times in the garden. And he wept his tears of repentance in the high priest's courtyard. And then he encountered the Lord's restoring grace on the beach. 
as the Lord likewise confronted him three times. Do you love me? You see, there's the repentance that's bringing the growth and the learning. And not only that, but then the Lord also commissioned him three times. Feed, tend, my sheep, my lambs. So that there's the grace that moves on from the dark past into a bright future. And within a few weeks, he's preaching confidently to thousands at the Pentecost birth of the church. His failure didn't deform him. It reformed him. There are two extremes in the face of failure as grace and failure are balanced. And one is to emphasize grace at the expense of failure. And this is what Bonhoeffer in the last century called cheap grace. And we'll return to him at the end. Alexander Pope has that memorable saying, to, to err is human, to forgive is divine. W.H. Auden paraphrased it. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Really, the world is admirably arranged. And how many there are that think of it somewhat in those terms. We're going to see that grace is real, but real grace can only be really experienced as grace once we have really faced real sin. So that's one one extreme to emphasize grace at the expense of failure. But there is another extreme, and that is to emphasize sin and failure at the expense of grace, where, where the sinner drowns without any sense of hope in the feelings of their guilt and shame. And many Christians have experienced this, like the woman who said once to a preacher, I've confessed this sin to the Lord a thousand times, and still I am not free. What does this psalm say to all of that? Well, the first 12 verses of the psalm are, are a prayer. The Lord uh, David is praying to the Lord for, for mercy and cleansing, and it's interrupted in verses 3 to 6 with a very poignant confession. He confesses his sin, but the basis of this prayer is, is God's mercy. And there are three Beautiful words in, uh, in the psalm that describe God's love. The first word is the word mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. It's, it's the Hebrew word chanan, which means grace. And it reminds us of the undeservedness in our love relationship between a, a holy God and a sinful people. God is not in a tit-for-tat game. He is gracious. That's his, his mercy, his grace. But then we also have the word uh, loving kindness, his loving kindness. According to your unfailing love, the Hebrew word is chesed. It's hard to translate, but it's, it's loyal love, this sense of persistent commitment to relationship, loyalty and love. And so there's not just undeservedness, grace, but there is chesed, there is loyal love. God is loyal. But then we have the third word, not just have mercy upon me according to your unfailing love, but then he says, according to your great compassion, tender mercies. This is the word draham. It's, it's compassion. It's, it's from the Hebrew word for womb. And so it's this idea of God as a nurturing God. 
this sense of motherly protection and love. And so God is gracious. He gives us undeserved love. He is loyal. He gives us his unfailing love, his chesed. And he is compassionate. He is nurturing. He is tender. As we're going to see later on, all of these words are linked back to an important episode in Israel's history in Exodus 34. But before we probe into this confession, we needed to emphasize it and point out that the confession starts with grace. Because that is the only answer to human failure. And that's what we need when we have rebelled and disobeyed and sinned. But before we explore God's grace further, we need to explore David's confession, verses 3 to 6, because he segues straight straight into it from God's grace and his loyal love and his compassion. In verse 3, he segues into this confession. And so I want you to, I want you to notice the first point is face the impact of sin through confession. So that we don't emphasize grace at the expense of failure, we're going to focus on this confession. And in this confession, there are, there are three words for sin. And I know that the ordering of these is very different from how we sometimes look at failure. Sometimes we just emphasize the action of sin, but scripture and David go deeper to the heart and the nature of sin. So that David begins and he says, blot out my transgressions, verse 1. The word transgressions, 83 uh, times in the Old Testament. And it comes from this word for that means rebellion. David realized that his motivation for this sin was from a rebel heart. And he faced what was in his heart without defensiveness or excuse. Part of facing the impact of our sin through confession is, is this ability to undefensively face the rebellion in my motivation. Of course, there's an acknowledgement here of the human dimension of sin. Verse 3, David says, my sin is always before me. This is not pleasant for our sin to be before, be before us. I know there's some who say, you know, I don't like to look inside myself. I don't like what I see. It's very interesting for a believer to say that. Uh, one would hope that looking inside, there, there may be something of the Holy Spirit there to encourage. So there may be some black and white thinking there to be, be faced. But that aside, if I refuse to face my internal motivations, the darker ones, there's a good chance I'm going to be destined to repeat them, destined to little, if any change. And so David begins here in his confession. He says, my sin is ever before me. I faced fairly and squarely my own self. This is the first step in the path to change and truly experiencing the mercy of God to undefensively face the rebellion in my motivation. Blot out my transgressions, my rebellion. But then the second word that's used is a more common word in the Hebrew scriptures for sin. What does he say? He says, wash away my iniquity, my guilt, 230 times in the Old Testament awan. And it's not now rebellion, but it's this idea of being bent or twisted or, or being crooked. It's this idea of perverseness, and it emphasizes the deep brokenness of sin. 
David realized the characterization was not just rebelliousness in his motives, but, but his, his nature, his fabric, his warp and woof had a complete brokenness. It wasn't just a, a failure in his doing. And so, and so as we face our rebellion, our transgressions, we undefensively face the rebellion in our motivation. But now, as we face our twistedness and our perversity, we are undefensively facing the brokenness in my being. There are different causes for sin. Verse 5, David says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And many people see in this a, a reference to sort of original sin, that, that by Adam uh, disobeying, many were made sinners. Romans chapter 5 says, and we've been born with this sinful nature and this sinful uh, condition. And that could well be true. Or it may just be a way of saying that the pervasiveness of my sin, my whole life from birth, David's confession brings him face to face that sin is not a small thing in his life that can be dismissed. There is a large reality. We need to face this. But there's something beautiful here because something that's crooked is seen to be that in comparison with something that is, is straight. And so this points us to the divine dimension. We've seen the human dimension. David says, my sin is before me and he he realized that his sin had affected others. Uriah was murdered. Bathsheba was taken. But now there's the divine dimension. It's not just against humans. It's against God. It's against God. And we're going to see that in this psalm. Blot out my transgression. The second word, he says, wash away all my iniquity, my guilt, my perversity. But then the third word, the most common word, he says, cleanse me from my sin 294 times in the Old Testament. And this is the common word for missing the mark. And it emphasizes not now the motivation and the brokenness, but it's the action of sin. David realizes that there is a failure in his doing that has brought many consequences. And so to face our sin so that we can come to taste the grace of the Lord, to face the impact of sin through confession. We are undefensively facing the rebellion in our motivation, the brokenness in our being, but also the damage from our actions. And it's very interesting what David says, verse 4. He says to the Lord, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course, Scripture acknowledges and affirms that there's a, a human dimension to sin. Exodus uh, chapter 22 is the great chapter of restitution. If you sin, you need to restore it. If my animal feeds in your field, or, or I start a fire in your field, or I've stolen from you, or if I've borrowed something from you for free, sort of like an animal, and it becomes damaged while with me and you're not there, the law said, I need to restore even the, the guilt offering in Leviticus acknowledged the need of restitution before the Lord. That if I stole from the holy things, I needed to restore and add the fifth part. And this is not just a, an Old Testament thing. The New Testament uh, reiterates this principle. Zacchaeus in Luke 19 doesn't just receive Christ joyfully and experience the forgiveness of his sins and the acceptance by the Lord and say, you know, praise the Lord, good to go. No, he says, grace makes me say, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have taken wrongfully, I restore fourfold. There's restitution that heals the human dimension of sin. But this prayer is a prayer not to humans, but a prayer of confession, a lament before God for divine cleansing. And so David acknowledges that sin against humans is also sin against God. And in fact, in this context, it's primarily against God. It's only against God. This actually is the way that David responded to Nathan when confronted in 2 Samuel 12, 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He realized his sin was against God. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Very similar to what another man of God felt, Joseph. You'll remember in Genesis 39, he's in the house of Potiphar, and, and, and Potiphar's wife solicits him in a sexual way. And it's interesting his answer, why he will not do it. He begins with the human dimension. He says, he says ah, there's no one in this house that's greater than I am, and Potiphar has not kept back anything from me except you, Potiphar's wife, because you're his wife. I can't take you because you belong to another. That's the human dimension. But then he goes on and he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He realized, like David did, that this sin is against the Lord. And so the first step in the, in the lament of confession is to truly face the impact of our sin to cry those tears, to face the rebellion in our motivation, the brokenness in our being, and the damage from our actions. No cheap grace. We face the impact of our sin through confession. But we don't stop there. No, we don't. We find as well the impact of grace as we reflect on the character of God. And just as we notice this, I want you to pay attention to the words we mentioned earlier. God's mercy is grace. God's unfailing love, his steadfast love, his chesed, and then his compassion, his tenderness. I mentioned earlier that these three words dramatically link with Exodus 34. And I want you to, I want you to notice that, that context now. Of course, the, the context is that Israel uh, had received the law covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. But after receiving those commandments and those laws, Israel is at the bottom of the mountain flagrantly disregarding the law by worshiping uh, an idol making a, a golden calf. And if you think of the sort of the covenant comparison to marriage, Israel is getting married to the Lord through Moses' agency at the summit of Mount Sinai. But Israel is a cheating spouse at the bottom of the mountain at the same time as she breaks the marriage covenant and worships a different God. But then we come to Exodus 34 and, and God's understandable anger is, is past. And, and now he desires to renew the covenant, to, to, to give a second set of tables of law, to reinstate the marriage instead of destroying Israel and starting again with Moses as he had discussed. 
And what is it that prompts the Lord to do this? Well, the Lord meets Moses on the mountain, and in Exodus 34 and 6, there's this beautiful disclosure of God's name and character. The Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the same three words that David uses, grace, steadfast love, compassion. They're found there in Exodus 34. In fact, Exodus 34 is one of the most commonly quoted Old Testament passages. There's about 23 allusions through the scriptures to that that great passage of forgiving love. It almost seems like whenever Israel was in a pinch, they turned back to it. And no wonder why. Their history began with a dramatic forgiveness story rooted in the merciful, gracious, and steadfast love character of God. Let me just point out a few of these times they turn to it. Maybe this will resonate with your experience. They're at Kadesh. And they've seen the fruit of the land, but they've turned back. And now they're going to have to wait for 40 years. And in Numbers 14, Moses directly quotes Exodus 34 in his prayer. He says, please let the power of the Lord be as great as you promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And in that dark moment, God forgave them. They still wandered for 40 years, but they were forgiven. A little later in Israel's history, Psalm 106, likely set in the context of the judges, reviews Israel's history. There's the wilderness craving for food. You can find it there in Psalm 106. Dathan and Abiram craving for power. Baal Peor, the waters of Meribah. But the climax of Psalm 106 is is the, the people of Israel repeatedly sacrificing children to demons. And then they're delivered to their enemies and brought low. And there's a lot of verbal echoes to the judges. Verse 41 says, He gave them into the hands of the nation so that those who hated them and ruled over them, their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious. But then I love verse 44. The psalmist says, Nevertheless, the Lord looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's the word. He caused them to be pitied, compassion, by all those who held them captive. Same God that they had met at Sinai and then re-met in Kadesh and then now in the Judges. But there's a last one I'd like to point out of these many references. It's in the Kings. 
It's the ministry of Micah. He ministered in the time of Judah's decline, the reign of Jotham and Ahaz, and the Assyrian threat is on the horizon. And, 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 and he ministers in a very, very significant way. The scriptures teach us, Jeremiah tells us. And it led to the Hezekiah revival. And here was part of Micah's message in Micah 7, verse 18. He reminds the people in that dark day, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There's the word. And he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And so you see the words that David appeals to here in Psalm 51. They're rooted in this kind of a God, a steadfast love, gracious and compassionate kind of God that Israel first met in Exodus 34. And whenever they were in their pinch, they appealed to that God. And as David reviews the history of that God, he says, this is my God, our God, and he appeals to that God. And maybe you're in that pinch. And you need to review your history. Not just not just to do what we've already discovered, to, to review the impact of your sin through confession. Don't stop there. Review the kind of God that you have. He's the same God as Israel's God. He's an Exodus 34 style of God, the only God who is. Steadfast love, compassion, and grace. Rest in it. Rely on it, or better, rest in him. Rely on him. In a subsequent uh, podcast, we'll, uh, we'll explore sort of the further dimensions of God's grace. But I just want just to close this off by reminding you of God's greater grace. For even gigantic failure. This is not just about David. This is about you. And about me. Remember in your failure. Avoid those two extremes. Don't emphasize grace at the expense of human failure. Face the impact of your sin through confession. As you undefensively face the rebellion in your motivation, the brokenness in your being, and the damage from your actions. But don't stop there. This confession psalm isn't about sin. It's about grace. So don't emphasize sin and failure at the expense of grace. Reflect on God's gracious, loyal, compassionate character. And begin to discover God's inner and thorough cleansing. At the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'll close with a quote from him from his book, Cost of Discipleship. He coined the phrase, cheap grace. And he said, it's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship. Grace without 
the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. But he continues and he says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God.